0: morning we're going to be uh, looking at Leviticus chapter 21, Leviticus chapter 21. Not the entire chapter. Uh, if you've been uh, doing your Bible readings, then you are, uh, you've worked through this section. And I won't ask for a show of hands as to who is doing their Bible reading and who's kept up with it. Let me encourage you, let me encourage you. Wherever you are, keep the bookmark in the Bible and keep it moving forward. If it, if it takes you 15 months, if it takes you 18 months, uh, you will get done. And so keep, keep going. And if you need to be selective, I'm not endorsing this, but if you need to be selective and you need to do the, ni- uh, the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs, maybe that's a way of, if, you, if that's an improvement, that's what you normally do then maybe working through the New Testament in a year is a good good thing for you. So anyway, keep going, keep going. Be encouraged, keep reading. Uh, Leviticus 21, verses 16 through 24. This is the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, for the generations to come, None of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand, or who is a hunchback or a dwarf, or who has any eye defect, or who has festering or running sores or damaged testicles. No descendant of Aaron the priest who has any defect is to come near to present the food offerings to the Lord. He has a defect. He must not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the most holy food of his God as well as the holy food. Yet, because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar and so desecrate my sanctuary. I am the Lord who makes them holy. So Moses told this to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites. Before we work through this passage, let's pray. Our Father, we... Thank you for the gift that you have given us in giving people to the church who have the ability to think and the ability to write lyrics that we can sing to praise you. We thank you for the gift of music, for those who are skilled not only at uh, performing it, but for those who are skilled at writing it. We thank you that you have so constructed us and the world that there is an intersection between sound and cadence that raises our emotions to connect more deeply and more profoundly with propositional truth. We thank you that you have given us both, minds to reason and emotions to feel, and that as disjointed as these are in this fallen world, in Christ they are restored. And in Christ we can enter into deep rational reflection that is not contradicted by deep emotional engagement, but rather leads to it. So, Father, we thank you that this morning we've been able to sing and to worship, that we have been able to think and emote, that we've been able to feel. I pray that you will continue through your word to align our thoughts and feelings together in a way which is pleasing and honoring to you. So often what we think and feel is not honoring to you, and we pray that you will forgive us for that. And we pray with the psalmist that the words of our heart, the meditation of our mind will be pleasing in your sight. For you are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. You who are perfect have given us this perfect word. And thus it is our responsibility responsibility to, by your spirit, discern its perfection and application. Only you can do this. Only you can work in our minds to help us to receive your word as it is, life and breath and bread and wine. So open our eyes to see that your word lives and help us to live as it is planted in us. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, if you were here you will recall that we looked at Leviticus chapter 16, which is the heart of the book. Uh, in terms of theology, in terms of ceremonial uh, cleansing, uh, even in terms of structure in, in the physical writing of the book, chapter 16 is your, it's your heart. Everything radiates out from it. Uh, and we talked about the necessity of uh, blood purifying, Uh, Aaron shedding the the blood of the bull for his own sin, the sin of his family. The the goat, propitiation, the goat that is destroyed, satisfying the wrath and justice of God. And the goat of expiation, the scapegoat where the sins of the people are symbolically confessed over its head, the sins symbolically transferred, and the goat taken out of the desert where it... Quite obviously dies. I mean, you, you have death in both propitiation and expiation. You can't, you can't avoid that. You mustn't think that the goat sort of is released in the wilderness where it lives a happy life for a decade. Uh, it's released in the wilderness where it's going to die. So both propitiation and expiation are only accomplished through death. And these things, of course, come together with Jesus, as we talked about last week. So you needed substitutionary blood to purify from sin, to purify the ark of the covenant, to purify the altar, the tent, etc. And the language of the text is, at the end, three times in an inclusio, this is to be a lasting ordinance. That is, you must keep doing this. You must keep doing this. You must keep doing this. Every single year. The question is, why? Well, you need to do it every single year because it never worked. That's why. As soon as the blood was sprinkled, the place began to be defiled again. No matter how much debt you wiped out, you immediately started going into debt again. It was just utterly impossible to ever get ahead. Plus, the blood of bulls and goats could not actually atone for sin. You could not, we remember saying this last week, just like with Sinai, with Sinai the whole point wasn't, come up, come up and and everyone just come into my holy presence. The point was, touch the mountain and you die. The Old Covenant started by showing, is God a redeeming God? Yes, you have Exodus from Egypt, you have crossing of the Red Sea before you have Sinai. So does redemption precede fellowship? Yes. Does God demonstrate His grace and mercy? Yes. But, the accent of the Old Covenant is, I will bring you out, I will give you redemption, If you come near my presence, you will die. The tabernacle repeats this. You stroll into the Holy of Holies and you die. In fact, this is something worth considering. At any one time, there is only one person in all of the world who could ever go into the Holy of Holies. Just one. And that person the only person in the entire world who could go into the Holy of Holies was only allowed to go in once a year. That's not a lot of access. <laughs> the whole message is, everyone keep out! Everyone stay out! And if Aaron or the high priest doesn't do this properly, he dies! So the stakes are high. There is, there is no way a high priest ever went into the Holy of Holies without fear and trembling. It never happened! Never happened! The stakes were literally life and death. Going into the presence of a holy God required the incense, the smoke, the blood, the purification rituals. Once a year, only one person in all of the world could go in once a year. That is not free access. That's a strong message. Stay out or you will die. Now, most of us are probably familiar with you know, how Jesus is the fulfillment of, of the sacrificial system. One of the things that God does in the Old Testament is God presents us with a lot of prophetic patterns which are fulfilled later in Jesus. And we've tried to to show some of this. So with the Passover event, you have liberation from slavery through a lamb without blemish or defect, its blood being shed, those who have faith shelter under the blood, and therefore don't die. Clearly, Jesus is the Passover lamb. We we drew that out. The exodus, the redemption that Jesus brings, is the fulfillment of that historical event. That historical event becomes a pattern. Sometimes in theology or biblical studies, this is called uh, typology, dealing with types. The exodus, then, is a type of Jesus. The Exodus liberation is like the liberation that Jesus brings. The Exodus redemption is a type of the redemption that comes through Christ. So the Passover lamb is a type of Christ. Okay, so it's very very simple. Now, re- now we get that word actually, um, not just in terms of analogy or simile or like, but from the word uh, "typos," which actually means a sort of a, uh, an engraving or a stamp. So what you do is when you stamp a few things with the same stamp. They look identical. They look obviously very similar. And so if you have a stamp in the Old Testament for Exodus, and you get Jesus, and he's stamped in the same way, then you line up those dots. You connect those dots. kind of like playing the game memory. Maybe you played memory. You have your cards spread out face down. You turn over two cards. And if they match, you leave them up. and And if they don't, you turn them back over. The whole idea is you're supposed to get card matches. That's kind of a little bit about what's going on here in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, you turn up a whole bunch of cards. Then Jesus comes, and you start flipping over other cards. You go, oh, wait a minute. I've seen that before. And you go scurrying back to your Old Testament. You go, yeah, oh, my goodness, Exodus 12. That's exactly what's going on here. It's a match. And, and then you go back, and you go, oh, here's another card. Jesus is the high priest. And, well, I, I think I've seen that is somewhere else. You go back in Leviticus. And, and, and what God is done, if you he's this whole memory game, where if you remember your Old Testament, which is why we read it, uh, you begin to see how God has constructed all of not just verbal prophecy, but actual history as a prophecy of Jesus. It's the most amazing thing. And you start working through all kinds of these. King and sacrifice and altar and temple. You know, Jesus says, you know, destroy this temple in three days and I will build it again. And he's talking about his body. He is the temple. The whole temple is a prophecy. It's a prophetic historical complex architectured and designed to teach you about Jesus. So when Jesus comes, you're supposed to flip over the tabernacle card and go back and study it, because it's all about him. See. Now, most of us don't have a problem with that. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist says, when he points to Jesus. And we say, yes, we understand Jesus is the Passover Lamb. Jesus is the sacrifice. We get that. We understand that language. But one of the things that is missed sometimes in our evangelical theology is the fact that the priest was just as important as the sacrificial animal. So we are very familiar about talking about animals, a lamb without blemish or defect, and we automatically just move from a lamb without blemish or defect to Jesus. And that's legitimate. That's a legitimate interpretation. The the Bible gives you that. But it's essential to understand the priest, no less than the animal, had to be without defect. Had to be. Now we tend to miss that in our theology, maybe because we're not coming out of this system where you actually had high priest functioning year after year after year after year, and where you could never come to God without priests in the way. Even that, though, was teaching you this. The priesthood taught you that as a sinner, you you could not have unfettered access to God without a mediator. Someone had to intercede on your behalf to God. There was a step between you and God. There was always a person. In this, the Roman Catholics have an inkling of truth. As a sinner... You do not have direct access to God. there must be a priestly mediator in between. The problem is that that priestly mediator is Jesus alone. And so there is Paul says this is, I mean this isn't theological interpretation. This is a quote. "For there is one mediator. So once you have that it becomes a little bit difficult to to populate the world with a couple million more, right? There is one mediator. Not theological interpretation, quote from the Bible. So so you sort of look at this and you want to say, yes, do we need a mediator? Absolutely. But who is that mediator? It's Jesus. But do not drop the fact that you need a mediator. You don't go directly to God, even as your father. You go to God as your father through the Son, That's why you pray in Jesus' name. Jesus' name is not he's authorized you for the credit card. Jesus' name is, I offer my prayer, Father, to you and you alone through the character and accomplishments of your Son without whom I have no access to you at all. And therefore, I pray to you in Jesus' name for access and also because if Jesus doesn't want what I'm praying for, I don't want it either. So I submit myself to your will by reminding myself that I offer this to you in the character of Christ who knows better than I do. And if Christ doesn't authorize this request, then forget it. Then say no. Or, or say yes if I want you to say no. Or, or say whatever you need to say because the reality is I don't even know how to pray. This is one of those really refreshing things. Remember when, when Jesus, when Jesus disciples come to him say, Lord, Teach us to pray. This is how you you, you ask God to do that. Lord, the truth is, I'm so foolish and selfish, I literally actually don't even know how to pray. And so much of what I pray for is just dead wrong. So Lord, teach me how to pray. And, And as I fumble and fail and pray for things that I want to get, asking you to give them to me, when you who see everything know that it's a disaster, forgive me, but overrule in Jesus' name. know not he just, not my will, but thy will be done? Nobody taught us to pray that way? right? So, so even in praying in Jesus' name, it's a submission to the will of the Father. It also reminds us we only come through a mediator. I don't sign off my prayers in Steve West's name. Because it doesn't matter. I sign off in Jesus' name. Because he's my mediator. He's the only one through whom I can come to God. Now, we've also talked about this. Physical properties are designed to communicate spiritual truth. So, a lot of the Old Testament law is baby steps. This is why in Christ there can be a change of law. Hebrews makes this very clear. The physical, no defect, no blemish, is pointing to a spiritual moral principle. So when we work through here, Leviticus 21, one of the things that you might think is that, is that back in Leviticus, they weren't awfully politically correct. You know, uh, disfigured, deformed, hunchbacked, Dwarf, and, and it actually makes me a little bit, just slightly nervous, you know, in terms of how Marshall McLuhan, he said, we make our tools and our tools make us, meaning we think we're in control. We create tools and all of a sudden we find that our tools are running our lives. Uh, if you ever want to know if Marshall McLuhan was a prophet, just look at how, how smartphones have changed the world. People are now enslaved to their phones. They are. There's no other way of saying it. Not everyone, but many. And there are mental and emotional and spiritual and physical consequences of that. For me, I spend a reasonable amount of time um, with a book and and typing. And what used to be strong and muscular shoulders and arms and a quite you know, significant pectoral mass have have now become like. Drunken, concave, you know, rounded, you know, kind of you know, impediments to real life. So, so that now holding a book or typing, you know, my, my entire posture has been utterly destroyed. And so now I somewhat, you know, often in, in daily life sort of resemble a, like a T-Rex, you know, kind of walk around like with disproportionately small arms and, or like a chicken because my neck just sort of shoots forward and my head kind of sticks out. And so just sort of this like kind of this awkward ugliness. Um. And so I I read this about hunchbacks, and i think well, it's not quite kind, you know, but nonetheless, nonetheless, a good thing that we're in a new covenant, because I'd be quite disqualified if if it was about pastors. So you look at that, and and you say, okay, okay, uh, why? Well, part of its service, is it difficult to serve if, with some of these conditions, given the actual labor that was required in the tabernacle complex? And the answer to that would be yes, like, like we're so far removed from any kind of natural root, it's it's utterly incredible. But you do recognize, right? Like when they slaughtered the bull, the bull did not cooperate. It has ever occurred to you? Like, these, these are big animals who who aren't just saying, "Well, oh, yes, I think I'd like to have my neck split, thank you." Like, like there, there's there, there's realities here of physical labor. And so some scholars want to say, well, look, I mean, if you want to be realistic, people who had these sorts of um, you know, difficulties were not likely to be able to actually serve safely. Maybe, maybe, maybe. More likely, though, it's, it's just the exact same principle as with the animals. No defect, no blemish. And, and God calls a spade a spade. Th- these are defects. Right? This is not full bodily health. The question then is why? Why is this such a big deal? And the answer is this. This is such a big deal because this is not ever in the first place about the physical animals and priests in the Old Covenant. It is always a prophecy of Jesus. That's the whole point. And so you can't have animals with defects, or else that completely messes up your interpretation of Jesus. You can't have priests with defects, or that will completely mess up your interpretation of Jesus. You absolutely need an animal and a priest, neither one of which has any blemish or defect at all. And the physical is pointing to the spiritual moral. Now the problem is this. This is the problem that's generated from the text. If the principle is spiritual-moral, and every human priest is sinful, how is this ever going to work? And the answer is, it's not. You must never think that the Old Covenant era was an era of great covenantal hope and delight reinforced again and again and again and again was this. You are too sinful to approach a holy God. Everyone's disqualified. And year after year after year after year, that's what they were taught. But that's also what drives the biblical narrative forward. If you, if you do read through the Old Testament this year and pay attention to it, it's not the same thing. We, we, can, we can all read, close the book, and quite literally not remember a word we read. That is utterly possible. I won't ask you if you've done that. I'll just, just say that, that it is possible. But if you read it and you pay attention, what you will observe is this. Every era in the Old Testament, at the end of it, when you start moving to a new era in the Old Testament... You're just left basically feeling utterly devastated at the failure of everyone, and that's not a mistake. That's how the text is designed. Again and again and again and again, you are brought to a place where you go, "How can God possibly? What? How can He possibly work with this? Well, maybe if there's a king. Oh, we have a king. It's even worse. How can God possibly work with this? Well, maybe if, if there's prophets. Well, maybe if there's no. It is about the most depressing and discouraging read in all of world literature. Except for the grace and patience of God, which in contrast to the performance of humanity is astounding. And so again and again, you're supposed to be brought to the point reading the Old Testament where you just go, Lord, if it's not grace, the whole history of the world can't be salvaged. If it's not grace, it, we're already lost. If it's not mercy and patience, God, and then you start asking, God, why? Why do you endure this? Why do you put up with this? Why do you keep going with this? And the answer is usually one of two things. There is no good reason except the heart of God. That is, you'll never understand it. It will never make sense to you because it doesn't make sense because it's a love that surpasses understanding. And the second is that God could put up with it because he was looking forward to Jesus. He always knew that he was going to bring his son into the world to take care of this problem. Now, the book of Hebrews... This, and we're going to go there. You might not be able to keep up, because I'm just going to sort of read quickly and randomly. Like, not randomly, like, I'm just going to pick random verses. I know the ones I want to look at. It'll seem random to you, and I'm not always going to say, this is the, t- this is the chapter and verse. To prepare for communion, I do want to look at the book of Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews will actually tell us, this is how God fixed the problem. This is how God moved from needing a... Sacrifice without defect, and a priest without defect. To looking around and realizing there is no human priest without defect. And over all of those centuries, this is something you about human history. You want to why, why did God wait so long? God waited so long because we are so incredibly slow to learn. What we think we learn in one year, we don't. Then ten years? than a lifetime? No. Sometimes we need century after century after century after century to go by before as a human race we start to actually understand that in us there is no hope. After all of the centuries of failed high priests and days of atonement, the time was right for Jesus to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of the problem. And you had no idea how big the problem was until century after century after century had gone by with nothing but failure. Now, Hebrews is a book which will teach you how to read your Old Testament. Uh, the, The New Testament as a whole does that, but Hebrews specifically will teach you how to read your Old Testament. So Hebrews 4. And this is sort of a, a meditation to prepare us for communion. Hebrews 4.14 says this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. What f- Did you hear that? what we've needed for all of these centuries is actually to have a real high priest. And every single one has failed. But now we have one. And he went to heaven, for goodness sakes. He ascended to heaven. There is no death of Aaron and Aaron coming back to life and ascending to heaven. There is no high priest going into the Holy of Holies and then stepping out the other side into heaven. But our high priest has ascended to heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Being without blemish or defect physically in the Old Covenant pointed to moral and spiritual realities. So, when you're told he did not sin, what you're told is this he was always without blemish, he was always without stain, in the only way that it actually mattered. Leviticus 21. You You think that having a physical defect disqualifies you from entering into the presence of a holy God. What about a spiritual defect? He had no sin. He was the only high priest who ever existed who actually was without blemish or defect. Because of that, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. A lot of us have that verse memorized. So we may receive grace and find or receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time. We love that one. Let us go into the presence of God boldly and get mercy and grace. you say, yes, but why? Because our high priest without sin. That's the only way you can go. You don't just say, Oh, he's my father and he's the king. I have to go strolling into his throne room. You go because it's a high priest who's your mediator, who's ascended to heaven, and he's there mediating for you in that holy of holy throne room. But because he's there without sin, go boldly. Go in. It's the opposite message of the Old Covenant, which said, don't go in. The Old Covenant said, stay out or die. This says, come in and live. It's the exact opposite message. Why? Because there's actually a high priest that we have, who understands us, all of our weakness. All of our sin, all of our temptation, he understands it all. But he was without sin, so come boldly into the throne room of your God. You could never, never say that to anyone who ever lived under the Old Covenant. Do you understand how privileged you are? No, you don't. None of us do. Because none of us have any idea how much of a privilege it is to have access to God. But you could never say this to anyone under the old system. Well, then chapter 5, verse 1, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. That is, Jesus was a real person. He actually was a... The human being. Then skip to verse 5. In the same way Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I become your father. Psalm 2. He says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a real person and he's our high priest. He's our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And and you're supposed to at that moment say, oh yeah, of course. Of course he's our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. That makes sense. But in case you don't quite remember everything about Melchizedek, the author is going to spell it out for you starting in chapter 7. Although we need to say this, chapter 6, verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Apparently, the writer of Hebrews says that Melchizedek is really important. When we talk about this, we have a hope, we have an anchor behind the curtain. My anchor holds within the veil, the hymn writer says. This is a shockingly appalling metaphor. In terms of function, I have an anchor. An anchor is stable, it's heavy, it's a weight. I have an anchor that moves behind the veil. What? It's a weird metaphor. Some we people want to know, how do you tell what's literal and what's metaphorical in the Bible? And The question is... Maybe the answer is literacy, right? You just, you just learn how to work with images. So, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that the author is so excited that he's running away with the imagery, he's running away from him. It's, it's an anchor of utter security that's bouncing into the Holy of Holies. And so, I now have an anchor in the Holy of Holies. My firm security is there because it went there. And now I have nothing to worry about, I have nothing to fear, because everything I need is secure and firm in the Holy of Holies itself. That's where Jesus went, the person who's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Hebrews 7 is going to give you what you need to know about Melchizedek. I'm going to summarize it very quickly. Melchizedek appears in two places in the Old Testament, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, Psalm 110, you'll remember as a messianic psalm because you know the first verse that Jesus quotes. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I can get a footstool for your feet. Later on, he says, I've appointed you a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 is a massively important messianic psalm which Jesus quotes about himself. Here the author of Hebrews is saying the Melchizedek part applies too. Psalm 110, sit at my right hand. It's addressed to the king. That is, David is addressing his own king. David is addressing his greater son. So it's addressed to a king priest. But you don't have king priests in Israel. In fact, the, only, the king who tries to be a priest, Uzziah, is stricken with leprosy. Because he tries to offer incense in the temple. Where do priests come from? Levi. Where do kings in Israel come from? Judah. Where's Jesus from? Judah. You have a real problem here. Jesus can't be a priest. He's not able to be a priest. He's disqualified qualified for being a priest. Except there's this one guy, Melchizedek, who shows up just twice. But in really, really important context. First, Genesis 14. Abraham defeats this coalition of petty kings who've captured some of his family. Melchizedek comes at him and blesses him. And the greater you know, blesses the lesser. He's a priest and a king. Priest of God Most High. King of Jerusalem. King of Salem. City of peace. Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. Genesis 14 makes that clear. But who could possibly be greater than Abraham in Israel? No one. Abraham is the greatest person in all of Israel. In a culture that prizes age instead of youth, which is actually biblical and the opposite of our culture, where everyone wants to pretend they're young even when they're not, in a culture that biblically and rightly prizes age, because age aligns with wisdom, over youth. Ancestors are more revered than descendants. So if Levi is a descendant from Abraham, then Abraham by definition has to be greater. Just how it works. Plus, Abraham was the most important person in Israel. So if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and Abraham is way more important than Levi, then Levi has to be more important than Aaron, and Aaron than all the other priests for all those centuries. Which means you can just track it back, You end up hitting on Melchizedek, who is, like, the most important person in the Old Testament. That's odd. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So when the author of Hebrews says, we need a high priest without blemish or defect, a couple things happen. Hello? Hello? A couple things that happen. A couple things are happening even right now. It's not it's really not a problem. So what's going on is there is precedent in God's economy for a priest king in Jerusalem. But it's not Aaron, it's not Levi. It's this guy called Melchizedek who has a higher Status than Abraham, and therefore a higher status than all of Abraham's descendants, including Levi and the priests. So the argument is this Jesus is a priest forever, but not like Aaron. He's a priest forever like Melchizedek, because he's greater than Abraham, and he's a king, and he's a priest. Now, these lines come together in chapter 7, verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. This is, this is it. This is Leviticus 21 in fulfillment. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That is the most important verse in the New Testament. That's the most important verse in the Bible for understanding the coming together of priest and sacrifice. Why do we actually have a sacrifice for sins that works? Because a priest without sin offered a sacrifice without sin when he offered himself. Priest, sacrifice, no blemish or defect. Right species, only humans can atone for human sin. Bulls and goats are disqualified. Perfect priest. Perfect sacrifice. The priest offers the sacrifice. Both are Jesus. And that's why there's atonement. That's why there's forgiveness. That's why there's salvation. And no other reason. Because nothing less could pay for even the smallest sin. Small wonder that Christians are to be people who rejoice. Small wonder that Christians are to be people who adore their Savior and their God. A priest forever in the order of Melchizedek the only priest, the only sacrifice that could ever atone for sin. And do you realize this? Do you know that God didn't have to give us this? God could have left us in the futility of our sin, but he didn't. And as we celebrate communion, we will celebrate, this is the lamb's blood. This is the priest's sacrifice broken body. This is why we have forgiveness. This is why we have eternal life. This is why we have an anchor behind the veil. It all becomes, it all runs to Jesus. He's the reality of fulfillment. You can take a moment to pray. I'm going to ask the, those who are going to help distribute these elements to come forward at this time. We'll celebrate communion together.